Okay, we're going to get started. So welcome, my name is Julian Savalescu. Uh, I'm the, uh, the, the Professor of Practical Ethics uh, in the Faculty of Philosophy and also a uh, Principal Investigator of the Oxford Martin School's Collective Responsibility for Infectious Disease. And I was uh, also formerly uh, a Principal Investigator on the Minor Machine Project here. So it's a great pleasure to welcome one of my uh, sort of personal heroes, Bill Casebeer, to speak here tonight. He's come uh, specially from the US uh, to speak to us. Bill is um, one of the most sort of uniquely qualified people to talk about advances uh, in technology and their philosophical and ethical implications. He has uh, both cognitive science and philosophy uh, degrees, uh, I think, from... Uh, is it San Diego? Yes. Yeah, uh, where he worked with Pat Churchland uh, and Paul Churchland, two of the sort of major figures in philosophy of mind. Uh, he was also in the US military where he uh, headed uh, an intelligence program in Europe. Uh, and also, previous to his current job, was the program manager at the Defence Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA where all of the really interesting research in the US military uh, goes on and he's currently the research area manager in human systems optimization for Lockheed Martin's advanced technology laboratory. Laboratories where he's working on developing autonomous systems with artificial consciences. So you don't normally come across a person with so many different strands uh, of expertise. So it's a great pleasure to welcome him tonight to talk on the neuroscience of moral agency and the, the talk will go for about 45 minutes and then we, we should have 45 minutes for questions. So, Bill, Thanks very much, Julian, for the kind introduction. Can everyone hear me in the back and the mic up okay? All right, great, thank you. It's really a, a pleasure and an honor to be here to talk with you. Uh, thanks for sharing some of your uh, time with me today. Um, Julian and I spent the last couple of days talking about uh, some potential fruitful areas of joint research uh, between uh, our team and uh, the team here. And I think one of the areas that is most exciting is to start to co-evolve our knowledge about how the brain makes decisions um, with our notions of uh, free will and moral responsibility so that those things all hang together in, in a fruitful and useful way. And ideally in a way that will give us some advice about how we might be able to develop assistive technologies and moral prosthetics so that we can make uh, better moral judgments and, and moral decisions in the long run. So uh, it's uh, with great pleasure that I talk with you some today about uh, how we might be able to, to, to weave together those strands, to bring together our knowledge of how the brain makes decisions uh, with the way we think about uh, free will. And so uh, I showed you this picture, uh, not because it's any great shakes in the neuroscience side. This is actually from a 1940s dictionary. So if you looked up the brain in, say, the Encyclopedia Britannica uh, in, uh, in the 1940s, you might have gotten a picture like this, where the brain's broken out morphologically and functionally into, into lobes, as it, as it still is today. Um, and you would also discover that not only have neuroscientists kind of built on the foundational knowledge of people like Ramon e. Cajal, who, who first discovered 120 years ago that, that neurons were separate from each other and that there was a, a synaptic cleft that divided them, uh, you would also discover that neuroscientists were hard at work solving uh, the four-color problem and figuring out how you know, we could color maps in such a way that we could uh, make sense of them. 
So neuroscientists are an amazing lot, and uh, what I'm going to try to do in this talk is to bring together uh, some uh, recent developments really in the last 15 years in neuroscience about how the brain makes decisions um, with a compatibilist account of moral agency. And what I mean by that is this. It seems like the brain is a deterministic organ, at least at some levels of analysis. So if I know its prior states, I can forecast or predict its future states using a set of laws that will enable me to, to transition from, from one to the other. And if that's true, if the brain is, a, is at least at some level of analysis a deterministic organ, uh, then we have a problem because a lot of our received notions about what uh, free will consists in that are necessary for us to attribute with things like responsibility for actions to each other come under attack if, if that's the case. And so what I want to tell you about is kind of my own personal journey uh, where I've come to grips with the brain's determinism and where I cling uh, to what I think is still praiseworthy about the way we praise and blame each other, kind of a neo-Aristotelian view, um, such that when I get up in the morning, even though my brain has determined my actions, I can still respect myself. That is, I can still have moral agency uh, foremost in my mind, and what I'll offer is a reductive account. I will say that that agency consists of some interesting combination of critical control capabilities, and that the most interesting questions in uh, ethical and legal philosophy are ultimately about what it means to be in control and out of control in certain environments and circumstances. And if we use that kind of language, we can kind of get over our Cartesian uh, dualistic uh, hangover and embrace the, uh, the brain's determinism. So that's what I'll do over the course of about the uh, next uh, 40 minutes. Uh, this will be a potted history, so in many respects it will satisfy neither the neuroscientist uh, nor the philosopher. Uh, so please forgive me. Um, if you push on some of the details, uh, you'll discover there are details to be had. In other places, the story is, is, is uh, still quite thin and something we need to, to work on together. All right, so a quick outline. I'll, I'll quickly motivate uh, the story I just gave you about the relationship between uh, the free will and uh, determinism. I want to engage in a series of thought experiments with you that will motivate the plausibility of the compatibilist position. The idea that some attributions of responsibility are entirely compatible with the deterministic nature of the brain. And then that will lead into a couple of examples of just flat-out science reportage. So uh, these are relatively old experiments in the neuroscience domain. Uh, most of them were done in the late 2000s. Uh, that deal with the role of regions like the anterior cingulate cortex in the brain in helping us detect and prevent error in the actions we're about to take. I'll use that as an example of the kind of critical control distinction that helps us make sense of what it means to be in control so we can attribute a responsibility for an action. And so I'll conclude with some speculative remarks, uh, really based upon work uh, done by uh, Paul and Pat Churchwin that Pat discusses in um, uh, a book, two books ago, called Brainwise, uh, that, that help us aggregate together these critical control capabilities into something like a, a control moral state space that we can use to give us practical advice and guidance about how we structure things like the law and character development institutions. All that in only 40 minutes. So what's the problem? The problem is that something like agency seems like a necessary condition 
uh, for moral responsibility. Uh, so that is, uh, if I am to be held responsible for an action, say, that I take in uh, the next five seconds, then it seems like I have to possess something that is like a will, and that, that will, that, that, that willing, has to possess at least two different characteristics. It has to be uh, free, that is unconditioned in some sense that we'll have to cash out, and it has to be, uh, at least in some strains of the, of the, tradi the moral tradition, um, constrained by the dictates of, of reason. So not a chaotic will, but a will that follows something like a, a generalizable universal moral principle in the Kantian scheme. So, uh, you know, we can just compare it, doing common sense moral philosophy, a free action versus an unfree action. So if I freely choose right now to turn and walk over and punch Julian in the nose, then I can be held responsible for the harm that I've done to him. And he could uh, sue me. Uh, I might be liable for assault and battery in criminal courts and in a civil court, at least in the United States. I'm not sure how it works in the common law. Uh, you could also uh, uh, could, could, be, could lodge a civil suit against me, and I would probably lose. Um, and justifiably owe him damages. Um, on the other hand, suppose that, uh, let's say, uh, Hannah had earlier slipped uh, LSD uh, into uh, the beverage I was drinking or meeting earlier, such that that LSD operated in my brain, and so I'm, I'm hallucinating, and I, I, when I look over at Julian, I, you know, I see a criminal. And so I think that I'm stopping a criminal when I, uh, from harming someone when I punch Julian. Um, there, we would probably say that action is not free, that there was some prior cause uh, that is exculpatory, and that forgives me. And in fact, if we were looking for an agent to blame, for this unjust punching of Julian, who would we blame in that case? Probably Hannah for spiking my punch with LSD. So these are very common sense notions we have of, uh, of agency and its exercise uh, that, that seem to be uh, necessary for us to attribute responsibility in the moral sense uh, for actions. And that moral responsibility in turn undergirds uh, things like notions of legal responsibility. So, as I mentioned earlier, that notion of agency requires a lot of unpacking, and uh, I do, there are experts in this literature, I'm sure here in this room. Uh, probably our uh, most prominent exemplar of this notion of stressing the autonomy of the will and the law-giving nature of the will is Immanuel Kant. So if you look at uh, the groundwork of the metaphysics of morals uh, or uh, the uh, second and third critiques, you'll discover in them a kind of an unpacking of this notion that, that my will needs to be uh, numinally free, that I have access to this domain where my will is not conditioned by a physical cause, um, and that it has to somehow be responsive to reason, so that again, I'm not a chaotic uh, agent. I'm, I'm both free and reasonable. And when I uh, you know, embody those two conditions, uh, then uh, I can, I'm an agent and I can be held responsible for uh, the maxims that I formulate to guide the structure to my actions. So a familiar story from uh, your basic uh, ethics course uh, that you might have taken here. So the problem comes about from these deterministic assumptions that undergird neuroscience that seem to be uh, at least uh, regulative for the practice of neuroscience. So when I talk about some experiments that uh, um, Green and Brown and others have done in a few minutes, it seems like there are some deterministic assumptions that make those experiments possible. And those deterministic assumptions seem incompatible with the existence of uncaused causes, like uh, a, a, a will that exists in, in the Kantian numeral realm, and the existence of pure reasons. It's cashing out what it means 
uh, to have a will that is conditioned only by reason and not by um, uh, some emotion or a chemical like LSD, as I mentioned earlier, is very difficult to do uh, in, in the neurosciences. So here's a perhaps too quick conclusion. It seems like science, especially neuroscience, undermines the very framework that some very smart people think is necessary if we are to treat each other as moral agents worthy of dignity and respect. We literally cannot uh, respect ourselves uh, on this story. So that's a problem. Why is it a problem? I would argue that in many respects it's tantamount to the heat death of the universe for our moral concepts, if this story is true. It, it's a, a universal acid that erodes at least one major strand in normative ethics with regards to why it is that we are rights bearers and why we have duties to treat each other in certain ways. And this is not, and I, you know, I realize I'm at university, so I don't mean this is a pejorative. It's not merely an academic matter. These questions that we confront do things like structure the law, as, as many of you know. They're shot through in our social norms. Uh, so think of the way you might have interacted with a friend. You blew off a party you were holding, and, uh, and you, your anger at that, uh, uh, at that uh, rebuff was conditioned by some of these assumptions, perhaps. It shot throughout our folk language. So the everyday way we talk about attributions of responsibility assumes this whole infrastructure. Importantly, our bureaucracies governing the use of force make some of these assumptions. So I know there are people in the audience who have served in the armed forces. And some of these assumptions about responsibility and attribution um, we find in things like the use ad bellum and use in bellum constraints uh, that we think place bounds on what we can do as we go about um, uh, dropping bombs and, and shooting bullets so as to uh, hopefully pre prevent a greater harm. So there's significant social upshot uh, if we you know, turn this universal acid loose on the received view. So that's our problem. How, how, do we, how do we acknowledge the truth of some of at least some level of analysis of determinism? How do we acknowledge the uh, interesting mechanistic take that the neurosciences have in a lot of our action, whilst also preserving at least some remnant of dignity and respect? And so in that regard, I am going to offer you a, uh, a form of, uh, of compatibilism. And the reason that I will push there is because I think I find the other alternatives uh, implausible. So this, this is just conclusionary. I'm not offering you an argument for some of these positions. I'm just laying out a position. I mean, we could just retreat to supernaturalism. That's one possible response uh, to the problem, is to say, uh, well, the, uh, the neurosciences have gotten lucky. Uh, but the simple fact of the matter is that when it comes to the will, determinism is false. There is indeed such a thing as a nominally free will and uncaused cause, uh, to use Aquinas' language, uh, or the language that Kant uses in the grounding, is just true and descriptive of the will. And you know, Kant makes interesting phenomenological arguments for why that's the case, that I have access, interior access to this, uh, this will. And you can find uh, this strand in many contemporary moral philosophers, uh, people like uh, Peter Van Inwagen, Derek Boom, uh, Robert Kane. Uh, many of them kind of offer a form of libertarianism that seems to be built around, uh, if not explicitly, at least an implicit uh, retreat to supernaturalism. Now, on the other hand, we could veer in the other direction. Um, and, and I should say that I'm just going to state that I don't think this retreat to supernaturalism does any work for us. 
Uh, that's a whole other talk about uh, why making the humanly free will uh, uncaused uh, it doesn't actually save some attributions of responsibility. I'm not going to go there in the 30 minutes I have left. But uh, in, in general, I think we should push towards naturalism in, uh, in both uh, normative ethics and, and applied ethics. So the other extreme we can go is to bite the bullet. We can just embrace incompatibilism. We can say that's right. Uh, uh, attributions of responsibility are entirely incompatible with the neurosciences. Um, so we need to, you know, forgive the uh, U.S. I guess not the English. We need to ditch the entire infrastructure of moral responsibility. Just leave it in, in the ditch where it belonged all along. You know, early exemplars of this response are uh, people like B.F. Skinner in his book Beyond Freedom and Dignity. Um, and you do have uh, contemporary philosophers who take this position. Uh, something along the lines of Gil Harmon at Princeton, right? So when he talks about the fundamental attribution error, um, so is this a finding that's familiar to everyone, that there are external causes that load onto the production of our behavior, and that we sometimes uh, mistake internal causes as being the primary determinants of our behavior when it's actually the shape of the room uh, or the temperature of the room. There's an infamous set of experiments done in the 70s that demonstrated that I could bias the altruistic behavior you would exhibit by putting coins in the slots of telephones so that if you found one of those coins, something about the way your brain processes rewards would then prime you to commit an altruistic, altruistic act soon after you left the telephone booth. So very interesting sets of findings there. And, and, and Gill says, well, that, those findings mean that there is no such thing as character, that we have no relatively firmly fixed habits or disposition. That's all a function of the environment. It's kind of, a, it's almost a contemporary version, at least in the social psychology domain of, of, of biting the boy. So there can't be character and there can be no character development. Now, I think this is a too quick of a move. Um, obviously, I wouldn't be pushing compatibilism. But I think in large part, it's too quick because it, it moves to offload the infrastructure of responsibility onto uh, non-appropriately described causes, right? So I want to argue that, well, not only is the fundamental attribution error actually partially false on empirical grounds, but also it is useful to talk about what happens between uh, the top of my skin and the production of my action and how that does actually uh, shape uh, the behavior that I take in the next, in the next uh, uh, minute or two. So for these reasons, uh, I think we need to consider uh, compatibilism. And here is a uh, potted history of it. So the idea here is that we say determinism is true, right? The neurosciences are finding out interesting deterministic things about the function of the brain, and that does drive our behavior. But our moral concepts of responsibility are still useful when framed appropriately. So you need a, a revisionary language here to help you make sense of attributions of responsibility. So here's my preferred revisionary language. The critical question by my lights is not, was my action free? And that's the one you might have asked 100 years ago or 500 years ago. Rather, I think the critical question is, was I in control or out of control at the time I took the action? And we need an appropriate qualifier here. In what respect? Because there will be times when it might be appropriate to attribute responsibility to me because certain critical control capabilities were within my control while others weren't. So agency is going to fragment a little bit on this analysis. 
Um, and what comes to mind there actually is an experience uh, that uh, Admiral uh, James Stockdale had while in a prisoner of war camp in Hanoi during the uh, Vietnam War uh, in the early 1970s. So he, uh, his airplane was shot down. He spent, I believe, six years uh, in the Hanoi Hilton, routinely uh, subjected to torture by his captors. Um, and he noted, making a stoic move, that he felt like, even though there were some things he couldn't do because his bones were broken or because he was in pain, there were other things he could maintain control over. And there came a day when ultimately he felt like he was going to lose even that last shred of critical control capabilities. And that was the first time in his life, he said, uh, that he seriously contemplated committing suicide because he would experience the ultimate indignity of losing all control. So a uh, very sobering kind of take on the importance of these in-control and out-of-control distinctions. So compatibilists in history on the right story probably include uh, virtue theorists like Aristotle. I think this is a neo-Aristotelian position I'm, I'm offering you, uh, where something like the functional architecture of a well-ordered psyche or, or soul uh, is necessary in order for you to be uh, in control. And in fact, that's part of what um, being wise, consistent, is ordering your psyche in such a way that you can exhibit uh, virtuous action. Uh, so, uh, you know, from Mises leading through to proper functioning or eudaimonia, to use his terms. And contemporary philosophers like Patricia Churchland um, uh, are definitely uh, compatible. So, uh, you know, it's not, at least not a crazy position to hold because people do, do hold it. So, this critical control distinction, I think, has a couple of interesting upshots. Uh, so we motivate treating agency questions as questions of control, and that becomes a reductive issue. And I think this is one uh, unusual move. A lot of people often don't think about the relationship between agency and control, and control and responsibility as being a reductive question. But I think it is a species of reductive question. And the right kind of reduction to critical control capabilities can uh, demonstrate the compatibility with neuroscientific determinism of certain types of capacities related to control. So to make that case, let me talk about how we reduce one thing to another. So again, no great shakes here. This is uh, what you would get in a typical course, say in philosophy of mind, about the relationship between psychology and the brain. Uh, you would probably cover in that, and you would have a few lessons about the nature of reduction, how to reduce psychological uh, mental states, the brain states, for instance. So, in general, when you reduce one thing to another, you have an uh, upper level of organization, and you're asking about the relationship between it and a lower level of organization. So it, it might be that uh, at, at a certain level, you talk about something like heat. And you're, you're, you're unclear on what heat is, but you know heat is something like, uh, maybe it's a fluid that transfers between one thing uh, and another. And it turns out that, that, that heat pays its way in our theoretical vocabulary, right? If we walk over to the, I guess it's the west side of campus, people still talk about heat there in the thermodynamics courses. It's just that they have reduced the concept of heat to something like mean molecular kinetic energy. And indeed, one of the great revolutions in physics uh, was the reduction of statistical mechanics to thermodynamics, right? We, we, have, we made this interesting marriage between two levels of organization and showed that the tools we use to talk about one domain could usefully be used in, in the other. And so heat, when it was reduced, was preserved. It paid its way, and that reduction was actually quite useful in the history of science. 
And so it goes probably for things like genes uh, or for canines, right? So a certain species of animal uh, that may have a, a pseudo-natural kind uh, in the place of the universe. Now, on the other hand, we can think of another end of the spectrum. So we retain these things, uh, where we eliminate certain terms from our vocabulary. They don't pay their way, theoretically. So phlogiston is uh, one of those, right? This was uh, that uh, mysterious substance uh, that supposedly was consumed in the act of burning, and there was, in the 1700s, a uh, you know, really fascinating research agenda built around trying to uh, look for the consumption of phlogiston in experiments and uh, you know, weigh objects and see uh, how much phlogiston was consumed and so on. You can see some of the instruments used for that in the History of Science Museum next door. But, of course, it unfortunately turned out to be the case that phlogiston did not exist. Now, these are two extremes on the spectrum. Phlogiston's an interesting case because it might be that it actually deserves to be somewhere here in the middle. Because uh, by phlogiston, we might have meant something like oxygen, right? which is, in fact, uh, consumed during the process of, of, of burning. But it wouldn't pay, play the same kind of role in our theoretical economies as phlogiston did. So phlogiston proper is eliminated or perhaps partially reserves, preserved somewhere in the middle uh, as oxygen. The ether, on the other hand, uh, we've eliminated. You know, the great debates in physics in the early 19th and uh, uh, late 19th and early 20th centuries and ultimately culminating with the Michelson-Morley experiments that demonstrated there was no background ether that served as an absolute anchor uh, for measuring uh, relative uh, motion. So that's out. And witches, uh, we have fortunately eliminated from our theoretical vocabulary. Um, one other uh, thing to note is that we may also have concepts that, that fragment under analysis. So think of something like uh, fire. So our pre-scientific notions of fire 2,000 years ago unified several very different uh, phenomena. So on the one hand, you might look up at night and see uh, a star uh, in the sky and, you know, maybe, uh, you know, Bill the caveman might go, oh, fire, right? And that's, that's fire up there in the sky. Um, and uh, Bill the caveman might, might start fire down here on Earth with uh, wood and, you know, the, the fuel and oxygen and so on. I start, mm, fire, warm. And I might look at a, uh, a firefly, right, that's, that's flickering in the night and say, oh, fire. Um, and yet, you know, like young Frankenstein in the Mel Brooks movie, he burns his thumb, and mm, fire. It, it turns out that the fire that's burning young Frankenstein in the movie is, 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 is only that kind of fire, only the kind of fire that involves rapid oxidation and reduction of carbon, right? The, the firefly is not burning in the same uh, respect. It may produce light. There's a very different uh, 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 mechanism of uh, chemoluminescence at work there. And we know that the uh, burning of stars is uh, a fusion uh, type of fire. So again, it might produce light and heat, but very different mechanism. So that's a, that's a concept that, uh, that fragments under analysis. So the question is whether uh, moral agency, what strands of moral agency survive uh, in a reductive story as we attempt to cobble them down into something like uh, networks of uh, burning mechanisms. Uh, functioning properly, what ones are eliminated, and what ones fragment under analysis. So I think there's a, a research agenda to be had here, um, and I want to start by motivating one particular kind of reduction. Just, it's just to say that 
at least some attributions of responsibility are going to leverage critical control distinctions, my compatibilism. And the way I want to motivate this is to do a set of thought experiments with you. So I apologize for the eye chart. It's probably difficult to read from the back. Think about the kind of meaningful control distinctions we can make between neural systems as they try to, to move you around in the world to help you accomplish certain things. So uh, I can reasonably compare something like a critter that has large working memory, say that can hold uh, 20 chunks of information in short-term memory, uh, versus one uh, like myself that has a small working memory that can hold uh, you know, seven plus or minus two chunks in, in, of information in working memory. Um, which of these creatures is going to have a larger span of control in a complicated environment? Probably the creature with the large working memory. So we'll be able to reason in, say, an in-back task that psychologists use to, to test uh, the, extent, uh, the extent of working memory, where you have to recall a position five times ago and five presentations of stimuli where a letter was. That's a really difficult task to do, and I would fail at it after going back three or four time steps. Whereas you know, a, a creature with a really large working memory would do, would do well at that. Now what about uh, a creature that has a short-term memory versus a creature with no memory? Certainly changes the span of control. We can expect this first creature uh, to be able to uh, react with a, um, a larger behavioral repertoire in a number of environments than the creature with no memory would. But what about a creature that has both a long and a short-term store, store of memory versus one that has only a short-term store? Short-term store. Oh, excuse me. So, uh, you know, think about a creature like myself, where I can take some of those chunks of working memory, and with the right kind of uh, uh, motivation, I can read them into long-term stores in the hippocampus and, and then tap those functionally to guide my behavior in the future, right? So I can, I can remember that uh, Julian paid me a kindness by remembering my birthday. And maybe I'm morally obliged then uh, to, to remember his in return, whereas the, the creature that doesn't have a long-term memory store uh, couldn't do that and would, and would be out of control, at least with regards to remembering people's birthdays. So, so it goes down on the left side of this chart. A whole bunch of different kinds of cognitive capabilities we have uh, that increase our span of control, that give us a larger behavioral repertoire and a larger number, number of uh, circumstances. You know, so, so compare organisms that can learn that different stimuli have different salience in different environments. Right? So uh, I'm, you know, uh, I'm married. So I have learned that there are certain contexts in which I can allow the salience of a secondary sexual characteristic to govern my behavior and others in which it is entirely inappropriate for me to do that. And so a, uh, a creature that, that had only uh, fixed salience mechanisms wouldn't be able to be sensitive to context that could govern things like fundamental uh, matrimonial uh, relationships uh, for, you know, that we need to, to, to reproduce as a species. And so it goes. Let's, let's draw on theory of mind for a moment. Compare a creature that has the ability to make inferences about the mental states of others, which is what theory of mind consists in. A, a cognitive capability most of us in this room are gifted with to some degree that's critically important for uh, enabling us to channel social interactions. Comes online relatively reliably around the age of uh, three and a half. And if you uh, have children, uh, you can actually conduct miniature cognitive science experiments with them where you um, uh, ask them certain questions, and you can divine whether or not they realize that your mental states are different from the ones that they possess. Right? So is this uh, this is a literature that's familiar to everyone, or 
Uh, right? You begin from this experiment here uh, that you can do with your child is you, uh, you take two teddy bears and you take a dollhouse uh, or a, a farm place or something and uh, you take your child, your three and a half year old, and uh, you say, uh, hey Johnny, look, uh, bear one is in the room and here's bear two and uh, they're talking and bear one has some candy and he puts it under the pillow and then bear two leaves the room and now bear one takes the candy out from under the pillow and instead puts it under the rug. Bear two comes back in the room. Hey Johnny, where's bear two? Go look for the candy. And if the uh, if Johnny says uh, he'll look for it under the pillow, then you can rest easy as a parent, right? That means they don't know that you don't know what they don't know, right? They they think you would have the same little universe as them, and every mental state they have access to, uh, 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 you know, you know as well. Now on the other hand, if they say bear two will look under the rug, that's when you 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 don't deeply. Because then you know that they recognize that you inhabit a different mental universe from them, they have nascent theory of mind, and uh, that elaborates a whole uh, set of social interactions. Uh, things like lying can then happen. So they can know that you don't know that uh, they didn't do their homework and that you know, try to pass off the dog ate it, uh, for instance. Um, so, you know, very interesting relationships between the development of theory of mind and attributions of responsibility that are linked to a critical control capability in which I'm sure, I don't know the law here, but I would imagine impact things like uh, the uh, culpability of individuals in the legal sense uh, who are on the uh, autism spectrum, uh, for instance, since that is affiliated with deficits in theory of mind. And so it goes. So I should say that uh, this list, uh, four or five of these, are taken from a lovely listserv posting. Remember those days? That Aaron Sloman made to the AI listserv uh, back in the mid-90s. So this idea of taking agency and breaking it down into these constituent components that can then be given plausible neuroscientific bases is really due to Aaron Sloman. I want to acknowledge him. Uh, it's unfortunate that, to my knowledge, he never actually turned that into a, a published paper. Uh, yeah, I imagine you can find it in the Internet Archive somewhere. But it's a listserv posting to one of the AI listservs in the, in the mid-90s. So I want to acknowledge a debt to him. So one interesting thing about a lot of these uh, kind of constituents of control is that they might be able to be aggregated or clustered into higher-order concepts. So now if you want to make the uh, reductive compatibilist move with Aristotle that I mentioned earlier, when Aristotle talks about knowing the good, choosing it for its own sake, from a firm and unchanging state of character, arguably we can probably decompose some of these uh, higher order concepts into clusters of capabilities that exhibit, uh, that we, we, we've talked about so far. Um, and, uh, you know, there are already examples of justice systems, like in the United States, that, that do this, that, that disentangle uh, the criminal state of mind uh, from, uh, you know, sentencing uh, guidelines, for example, where you can actually look at exculpatory uh, circumstances. So the, there's a lot of ways in which we can kind of cluster these together into higher order concepts and then use them to do good work for you with regards to attributing responsibility. And I just do want to note that that clustering isn't metaphysically dense. So uh, to talk to the philosophers in the room for a moment, what, what I offer here is kind of something like uh, uh, homeostatic property clusters is the phrase I would use uh, to acknowledge uh, philosophers who have been working in uh, notions of function 
in evolution. So it, it, it's not that these necessarily have an ontology that somehow becomes uh, metaphysically suspect or supernatural, but rather they are useful ways to think about clusters of concepts, clusters of critical control capacities that generally go together just because of the functions they enable in our evolutionary history. In a lot of ways, this is a conceptual analog, the move I just made, to that made by Valentino Breitberg in his lovely book, uh, Vehicles, where he works, uh, this came out of the MIT Press in the early 70s, kind of a, a lost class in cognitive science, uh, where he builds up more complicated behaviors from simple constituents that are embodied in these small cars and vehicles where you can do things like uh, cross inputs from sensors and get very different, uh, uh, very interesting, aversive appearing uh, behaviors in the part of the vehicles. And so it's a, a real kind of a, a lovely uh, fable about how you might be able to move from basic capacities to higher order clustered concepts. All right, so let's transition from uh, kind of the philosophy portion of the talk to connecting this to some of the neuroscience work that's been going on in the past decade in control. And so what I'll do now is just some science reportage. Uh, no original work here. Um, uh, that, that I'll highlight it. This is all uh, work uh, coming out of people studying uh, error control mechanisms in the brain, especially something called the anterior cingulate cortex. So I think error prediction and control is probably going to be part and parcel of, of, a, of a critical control distinction that we need to make uh, to attribute responsibility. And I was, uh, you know, bowled over. This is this shows my age, I suppose. Ten years ago, when uh, I was cruising along in my car and listening to national public radio. Uh, so in the United States, uh, and uh, yeah, I, the lead article was actually about uh, uh, Josh Brown's work in interior cingulate cortex. And so I'll tell you about that lead article just because it's illustrative. And because we also use some of the findings from this neuroscience to build a, a closed-loop performance improvement system, something my, my team does uh, in the lab or in my day job. So uh, what Brown et al. discovered is that there is a, uh, a complex network in the brain, I'll show you a wiring diagram in about two slides, that includes this, uh, this chunk of cortex called the anterior cingulate cortex. It's part of prefrontal cortex, um, uh, orbitofrontal cortex. That's just forward of it. But that was one of the uh, parts of the brain that was destroyed whenever the tamping iron uh, went through the skull, uh, Phineas Gage, in that uh, infamous case in the 1800s. And what the ACC does is it has this unique role of flagging environments for the brain where your fixed action patterns that you're implementing are likely to lead to dysfunction, right? Are likely to lead to, to, to uh, punishment versus reward. So uh, what I mean by that is this, this center seems to detect the likelihood of error. Uh, it's not merely responding to error uh, after the fact. It's actually actively thinking about the relationship between the action you're going to take and the environment, seeking mismatches uh, between those things. So this piece of, of, of cortex is related to a whole set of, of nonspecific neurotransmitter projection systems. So these are, are systems that modulate the likelihood that any particular uh, synapse will fire uh, using a variety of, of neurotransmitters, uh, all of which are probably familiar to you as you've been following the, the brain sciences in the last year. And so it's interesting to know the relationship between some of these chemicals, some of these neurotransmitters, and dysfunctions in control capabilities and that, uh, that uh, ACC, right? So for example, you see abnormally high activity in some of, these, uh, uh, some of this chemical soup in obsessive compulsive disorder. 
Uh, you see um, uh, low dopamine levels, for instance, in some patients with schizophrenia, and there's a really nice review article by Kearns uh, that kind of lays out these really fascinating relationships between these nonspecific neurotransmitters and the operation of some of these, of these neural networks. So we can kind of think of something like a state space for control, uh, right? a, a high-dimensional space where we start to aggregate together some of these clustered critical control distinctions, and they become axes. And then we think about agencies existing in some volume of that space. So what it means for most of us to generally be responsible for our actions is that most of us are put together uh, uh, cognitively. Uh, we're, we're up to snuff, if you will. We're not DSM diagnosable with, a, with an illness. And we, we kind of drift around in, in that space generally. And uh, that's a good default assumption, right? If I were to hit Julian just now, you, you could probably say, well, you know, Bill's a bad guy, and I'm holding me responsible for it. Um, and that's because most of us exist in any kind of the centroid of this, of this uh, state space for control, generally. Now, what might the axis of it be like? On the one hand, we could make a reductive move where we look at these aggregate levels of these nonspecific neurotransmitters and maybe uh, come up with an interesting uh, control state space there. Or we might try to aggregate together some connectivity-related measures uh, that enable some of those capacities I mentioned earlier. Right? So in order for there to be a long-term store, I have to have some kind of connectivity uh, between areas in my brain where sensory integration takes place and those hippocampal structures are going to read those constituted objects into long-term memory so I can retrieve them later. Right? There has to be connectivity. So one important form of connectivity is between a lot of those reward processing structures in the brain and executive function, kind of embodied frontally. So uh, this, this, this idea of coming up with the state space kind of builds off this interior scene with work. Um, so this actually is lifted straight from uh, Brown's paper in 2005. He talks about the ACC as being kind of a stoplight. Um, and there are you know, good stoplights and bad stoplights, right? So for an expert stoplight, what that means is that you, you train your anterior cingulate in the environment of action which you're good at, such that you can detect early on when there's a mismatch between the environment and a fixed action pattern, so you can modulate your behavior accordingly. That's really important for us to be able to do, right? I have to know uh, that, in general, I ought to shake hands with Julian uh, but if he's replaced by a doppelganger as a knife when they tries to stab me, I'm instead on to uh, defend against his actions rather than uh, shaking his hand. So uh, this was fMRI work, so you get the typical uh, pictures that leverage the blood oxygen level dependent signal from fMRI. And I don't have the numbers in this chart, but the bottom line is that what uh, Brown showed is that if you introduced a long delay between the prompting condition and a condition of mismatch, that you could induce errors in individuals, and that those were tracked, uh, not prospectively, but, uh, but, but uh, prospectively, excuse me, not after the, after the fact, by the interior cingulate, right? So in those cases where the arrow, the arrow pointed the other way and you had to identify that condition, implement a different fixed action pattern, uh, then you had a lot more errors in the longer delay time, and those were tracked by the interior cingulate. So an important likelihood that you are about to commit an error given the environment, given the change in stimulus uh, mechanism. Now, let me pause for just a moment and talk about how this mechanism could be leveraged to actually increase your span of control, right, with technology. Again, part of what my, my lab does during the day. So 
Uh, think about something like a sensor that I can put on your head. Maybe it's a non-invasive sensor like an electroencephalogram that just detects patterns of electrical activity over the scalp. If I can somehow extract from that set of sensors a signal that I know is linked to the operation of the anterior cingulate cortex, then I might be able to use it as a signal that your brain thinks it's about to make an error. And as I mentioned earlier, experts detect those errors, errors earlier and are able to modulate their behavior so they don't commit the error. That's what makes them expert performers rather than novice performers. So it turns out that in the Air Force world where, uh, where I had my roots, that there is a, uh, a problem in piloting called pilot-induced oscillation. And what happens in pilot-induced oscillation is that you're flying along, and uh, normally speaking, you ought to be having a certain kind of control input, let's say pushing the nose of the airplane forward, but your control input's actually, in the worst case, 180 degrees out of phase with where it ought to be. So you're pulling back on the stick rather than pushing the nose of the airplane down. Usually this happens because of latencies in perception and in reasoning both, right? So those kind of that, that, that delay stacks up, and by the time you realize, oh, I ought to pull the stick back rather than push it forward, it's too late. You should be pushing it forward now. And so what that generates is if you've ever watched a footage of an airplane uh, almost crash on landing and it porpoises, I don't know if you've seen that, that is pilot-induced oscillation. And you see it also in aerial refueling maneuvers. So one way that that happens is you have a drogue coming out of a, uh, of a uh, tanker, and then your fighter airplane might come up and it has this kind of a complicated operation of, of docking the drogue with the receptacle that allows it to take on fuel. And you will oftentimes see uh, uh, pilots uh, realize they're about to miss the drone, and so they start overcompensating, and then you get a huge PIO, and then your airplane crashes and people die. So not a good thing to have happen. Well, in a simulator, if I can use that EEG to monitor ACC activity, and if I know that providing you with certain kinds of experiences in the simulator, allows you to train the ACC to recognize when you're about to enter a pilot-induced oscillation state, then I've effectively shortened the training time it takes to make you to an expert who knows, oh, right now I ought to ease off on the stick because I can, I can enter a PIO condition. All right, so we've actually built those systems on a single trial basis. Uh, uh, we can uh, detect uh, ACC activity in the EEG data stream, and then I can use that to pull certain CAN simulators in my flight simulator and provide those to you, and then provide objective evidence that's not just behavioral, but also mechanistic, that the training actually had the impact of making you uh, a better detector of potential errors you try to repeal, for instance. So this, this science matters, uh, not just for our moral concepts, but also because we can build interesting training technologies with it. So uh, in my final couple of slides here, uh, this uh, diagram is just uh, kind of blatantly uh, ripped off from uh, Patricia uh, Churchland. Uh, so one of my uh, mentors at the University of California at San Diego, as, as Julie mentioned, as uh, Julian mentioned, excuse me. And this is, uh, was a Pat's attempt to start to aggregate together some of these uh, critical control distinctions. Uh, so we already talked about the relationship between, say, serotonin levels uh, and dopamine levels. So you get all kinds of dysfunction uh, when both of these parameters uh, kind of exit uh, normal, uh, the normal operating regime. Uh, you know, think about uh, the movie Awakenings based on Oliver Sacks books uh, that detail the kind of dysfunction you get uh, whenever uh, serotonin levels are extremely high or extremely low. Um, 
You also have questions of connectivity that allow some of those memory systems, for instance, to modulate executive function, uh, or that maybe allow, in this case, uh, called out the amygdala, allow experiences you've had in the past that want to condition you to be averse to certain stimuli, to fear them, to actually influence the way you, you reason. And then those can be brought together to think about this, this center of mass for a higher order space. I suspect there are many other dimensions, and this is probably a, uh, a 30 or 40 dimension space at least. And most of the time, for most of us, we orbit in this in-control region that can be held responsible for our actions. But there will be times when due to internal dysfunction or due to environmental influence, we're pushed outside of those regions and we enter the out-of-control region in which case, we may very well want to make the Skinnerian move and enter a therapeutic mode uh, rather than thinking about uh, issues of justice and reward and punishment. We either think about reward and punishment only, uh, punishment only instrumentally as a way to make you better, if you will, and or uh, we use explicitly a medical model in those cases, as is actually the case, right? For a DSM, uh, you know, whatever flavor of DSM you like, four or five, um, you know, we, we generally don't recommend incarceration uh, for treatment regimens, right? If I have PTSD, cognitive behavioral therapy is part of the uh, uh, standard of treatment, not, not imprisonment. So to show that this process won't be easy, it's helpful to review quickly the connectivity story. Uh, so if you look at something like uh, dopamine pathways, so recall that one axis of the control space that talked about uh, aggregate uh, dopamine levels. Uh, you know, this is a, kind of a quite complicated pathway uh, that's modulated by dopamine, right? So you have sensory input, you have uh, the thalamus, the infamous kind of thalamocortical loop theory of consciousness doing work here, you know, potentially uh, resolving the binding problem. Uh, that feeds into some of those uh, primary sensory cortices that you saw on my very first slide, you know, colored uh, yellow, I believe, in the uh, Encyclopedia Britannica. Um, that, in turn, influences uh, prefrontal activity. Again, think of Phineas Gage, think of Brown's work in ACC. And that has downstream impact on parts of the brain that are responsible for conditioning me to be uh, adverse to certain stimuli uh, or to uh, motivate me to act. Uh, in, in the presence of certain stimuli. And so, you know, that relationship between these mechanisms and our repertoire behaviors, both automatic and those we think of as being driven by executive function, will be complicated. So I guess my, my foot stomping point here is I don't promise a simple reduction. Uh, I wish I could. Uh, hopefully we can find some aggregates of those control concepts that we can then attach folk language to so that we can insert those terms into our social discourse and into our uh, law. In fact, I think that's, that's already happened, uh, but that won't necessarily be the case uh, for every instance. So we should acknowledge complexity where it exists. Okay, so in my last uh, 30 minutes before my, my 50 minutes expires here, uh, I just want to offer up what I think is a really interesting research agenda in critical control distinctions. So I would argue that we need to co-evolve something like these medium granularity control concepts with cognitive neuroscience. So we need to flesh out that story and get a more complicated story that doesn't just talk about serotonin and dopamine and connectivity between uh, limbic and executive uh, structures. In other words, we need a neuroscience of critical control distinctions. Why do we need that? For therapeutic purposes for our folk language. So we can inform our character development institutions so that the law can acknowledge the reality of attributions of responsibility. And fortunately, we can leverage low-hanging fruit from lots of already well-established work 
most of the work that I've talked to you about today is just 10 years old, and there's been all kinds of really interesting uh, developments in how we model those systems, like the one I just showed you the wiring diagram for. And we should work to kind of plug gaps with sensitivity to control distinctions that are going to be most likely necessary for attributions of responsibility. Most of those distinctions will be social. That's why I think some of the most interesting work in neuroscience is taking place in social cognitive neuroscience. Given our evolutionary history, uh, that is no surprise. Our traditional environment of action for collective behavior is a, a social environment, and that's just why in uh, ontogeny uh, we come to have that theory of mind when we're three and a half and can, and can lie to our parents. So I think methods that acknowledge the critical control distinction and our sociability are especially valuable. I want to point out two here that you may, may have heard of. Uh, one involves simultaneous uh, fMRIs. That's called hyperscanning. It was a method that was pioneered by Reed Montague at the Baylor College of Medicine in his neuroimaging, human neuroimaging laboratory. That's a really nice way to allow you to get at social interactions inside of a, a, an instrument that will give you those same kind of bold colored signals that you got from uh, the diagram I showed you from Brown. Another fascinating methodological development is uh, from Yuri Hassan's team at Princeton. So uh, I encourage you to kind of Google his team's work. He's uh, doing some really interesting work uh, that is one of the four or five times uh, in the last six or seven years where I've, I've heard my name I said that, you could win a Nobel Prize eventually, right, for that insight. And his insight is that most of our statistical pattern matching techniques that we apply in our brain data take place within an individual brain along uh, temporally close sequences. Wonderfully relax both those assumptions and do multi-voxel pattern analysis in a temporally extended fashion and across brains that are interacting. So rather than asking, how does my interior cingulate uh, activation uh, amount vary with a particular stimulus, maybe we should use my interaction uh, with Hannah or Julian as the stimulus and look at how my brain, the voxels in it, uh, correspond to changes in Julian's brain five or six seconds after he hears me say, uh, hey, Julian, I had a good time during my visit to Oxford. Right, so that, that is a critical insight that will help us get at, I think, some of these critical control distinctions that are social in nature. And they've had a fascinating set of experiments where they show that they can quantify, using the neural measure, not the behavioral measure, when someone is an effective teacher, for instance. When my description of a situation is likely to replicate in you the brain states that are sent several seconds earlier in the voxel analysis that they get from fMRI. So uh, I can tell you a story, and using that neural signal, I can predict whether or not you'll be able to recall some of the, uh, the, uh, the, the items and events in the story, uh, depending on how good of a storyteller I am. So really fascinating uh, methodological development. So one place to start is to look for systematic variations in something like sensitivity to social cues. Um, and you know, think again about that variable versus fixed salience uh, notion and start to suss out what implications that has for attributing responsibility to meaning for being sensitive to certain social interactions. Uh, maybe that would be a non-threatening place to start uh, since that's going to link up to things like um, those therapeutic regimens that we already have some handle on uh, for things like um, uh, autism spectrum disorder. So exploring the boundaries of that state space, examining the situational influences which push agents into the borders, and then making sure that we co-evolve those distinctions 
uh, with uh, the machinery of the law and with our character development institutions, I would argue is one of the paramount challenges we face in the 21st century. And it's by grappling with this challenge that uh, I hope you too, uh, like me, can uh, embrace uh, determinism, but still respect yourself in the morning.